So, last week we started to answer the fourth, the last of the four questions I've been posing as we've gone through this discipleship series. That fourth question is, how do you make disciples? How? The first thing we looked at last week was disciple makers, aka apprenticing apostles, facilitate others into faith and into fellowship with God. Disciple makers facilitate people into faith. We see that obviously most perfectly through Jesus's example. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, both his life is the means to the Father and his life's example is how we commune with the Father. Secondly, apprenticing apostles make disciples through intercession for them. And this is a, an encouraging one and a convicting one to me. I can't speak for you, but for much of my life, Prayer has not been what I know it should be. But if we remember that praying is simply talking with, having conversation with, which also requires listening to the Lord, when we really dial down, we remove the distractions, we set aside time to interact with the Lord, I know I can speak for some of you, I've experienced it. It's, it's an amazing time. Time evaporates. Time is irrelevant. Time won't be irrelevant right now. <laughs> but if we wanna see people come to the Lord, it's not gonna be on our own best efforts. Ephesians 2, eight through nine says, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works of our own, which doesn't just mean I'm not saving myself. No matter what I say, how much I say, or how well I say it, that in itself is not gonna lead someone to Jesus. I didn't die on the cross and no efforts of mine are going to save someone. We need the Holy Spirit to interact and intervene. And so we intercede to Jesus through the Holy Spirit for the Father's heart for people. Thirdly, if we wanna see people, well, I already said this, but speaking of prayer, intercession, James 5, 16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I remember for years I'd hear that verse and I'd go, well, I sure don't feel righteous. I'm not a righteous guy. You know, Noah, Abraham, these people we read in the Bible, they're righteous, but what am I? We need to remember what righteous means. Righteous means holy and true and pure. Nobody on the face of this earth fits that definition except for Jesus. So what makes our prayers effective? Again, we have to remember that we depend on Jesus. As disciples of Jesus, we depend on his holiness who has made us pure. And so our relationship with the Lord is true, not because of what we do, but because of who he is and what he's done. So just be encouraged by that if you're thinking, what could my measly prayers do? The effective prayer of a righteous man or woman. Anyone who has a relationship with Jesus those prayers are effective, and they accomplish much. Lastly, we make disciples through our example. Our example, which kind of goes without saying, right? Jesus connected us with God through his own life, literally, but he also connected us with God by his own example. It wasn't just what he did on the cross. If it weren't for the cross, everything else is null and void. It's useless, it's empty, it's worthless. But because of what he did, everything else he did in modeling to us how to have relationship with the Father is, 
It's not just good or great or awesome. It's vital. It's necessary for life itself. I just want to say this. This is something I picked up from someone else. A lot more is caught than taught. And I, as a dad, am reminded of that. There are things that I can tell my kids in words, but I don't spend all day talking to them. Most of the time, they observe based on what I say and how I say it and who I say things to. What, what are dad's values based on how he spends his time? A lot more is caught than taught. So with that, we're actually gonna jump back a couple verses. We're gonna pick up in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 32. And if you're taking notes, first point is apprentices abide in obedience. Apprentices abide in obedience. Here in verse 32, Moses recounts to the second generation of Israel based on what God had told him. He says, so you, God telling Moses, so you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Question, why did our parents give us rules growing up? It was for our own good, and many of us heard that, especially after we vexed our parents they had to repeat the same thing over and over. Don't you know why I'm telling you this is for your own good? This is far more true with God the Father, infinitely more true. He's perfect, which means his commands are perfect. They're flawless. And that means when they're obeyed, and this is counter to our culture these days, but when we follow God's commands, we experience his blessing. His commands are intended to bring us into his blessing. Verse 33 says, that it may be well with you. Why is God commanding Israel to live a certain way? That it would be well for them. That it would go good for them. Look at our society and our country today. The values that people are living by have gotten further and further away from God. And what do we see? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness has increased, the love of many will grow cold. If we wanna see God's love manifested in our relationships with family and friends, we've gotta live by the law of the Lord. And when I say the law, I don't mean the 613 commandments God gave to Moses. I don't mean trying to prove ourselves holy enough. What I mean is what Jesus said when he was challenged. What's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said, and the second one is like it. In other words, you can't do the first one if you're also not doing the second. The second comes out of the first. It's evidence of the first, which is love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus upped the ante, he raised the bar, he revealed what that actually means later on when he's talking with his disciples. I have a... I leave a, a greater command with you. John 14, 33, I believe, 34. He says, <clears throat> love one another even as I have loved you. Which means Jake's gonna spend the rest of his life growing in that. This is why it's, it requires apprenticeship. 
because we don't just memorize it and go, I know it. Well, you know it here. How much do you believe it here? And we speak what we believe. What comes out of Jake's mouth on a daily or weekly basis? That evidence is where my heart's at. All this to say, we, what we read here in Deuteronomy is a real-life example of what Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 teaches. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Remember, that is why the first generation of Israel didn't make it into the promise, never received the rest of God because they leaned on their own understanding. They didn't trust in God with all their heart. They would say, we trust in God with most of our heart, almost all the time, for most things. That doesn't cut it. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Let me combine that passage with what we're reading here in Deuteronomy 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. God tells Moses to tell Israel, observe to do just as the Lord commanded. And do not lean on your own understanding. Do not turn, he says in verse 32, do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. God tells Moses to Israel, you shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you. And finally, the promise in Proverbs 3, 6, and he will make your paths straight. What does God tell Israel? That you may live and that it may be well with you. Israel weren't a, wasn't a nation of, of subjects who had to just loyally follow this God. God called them his firstborn son. What do we do with our children as we raise them up, we train them up? We give them commands, rules, boundaries, guidelines. Why? Because if they operate within these, things will go well for them. And as parents, we, we love nothing more than to see our children grow, mature, and be blessed. But we can't experience the blessing apart from the blessing. And oftentimes we make that mistake. We want the good things of God without God. But the good things come from God because he is good. The God of the Bible doesn't give us commands to control us. If obeyed, his commands guide us into his blessings. His commands actually guide us into his blessings. He's saying, listen to me, follow me. If you do what I say, this is what's in store. Israel out of Egypt, if you do what I say, you live the way I've created you, here's the blessing. They wouldn't have to earn it. They'd walk into a nation, in, into a land that was already fertile, already prepped. It was theirs right for the taking. They just had to trust God with all their heart and acknowledge him with all their ways. And they didn't. So they never experienced the blessings God wanted for them. Here's a question to consider. How is your obedience in Jesus doing these days? Now, I don't think anyone here who's honest with themselves can say I'm doing that perfectly, but I don't ask that question to make us feel guilty. But I ask that question so that we take honest stock of where we're at in life, because it's easy, especially in 21st century American life, to just bebop along, go from one thing to the next. We're so busy with everything going on, we never stop to dial down and think, how am I doing with the Lord? What does he want? What's he saying in my life? Ask yourself, Lord, what are you doing today? And what's my part in what you wanna do in my life? John 14, 15, Jesus said, 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That word keep is really important. John 15, five, I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What part of that do I fail to realize? Apart from Jesus, you can't do anything, Jake. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13, right? If we have the tongues of angels, we know all mysteries, we all know, have all knowledge, we have prophet, the gift of prophecy, we do all these great deeds for humanity, but without love, I'm nothing. And love is not something, it's someone. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God here is teaching and urging Israel to abide in his will. So oftentimes I've asked, God, what is your will? What's your will for my life? I wanna know your will. And we want it in snapshots, but in order to know his will, we have to abide in it. What does that word abide mean? Keeping his ways. To acknowledge the Lord in all our ways is to abide in him. So again, what is abiding? It means to stay, stay, to remain, right? If you have a, a grapevine and you cut off a branch and you leave it disconnected for six days of the week and then you plug it in one day of the week for a couple hours and then you unplug it again, that thing is not gonna last. It will certainly never bear fruit, but it'll likely wither before it has a chance to start feel, you know, receiving the nutrients from the vine into its branch. But so many of us live that way. Right? It's like we clock in with Jesus and we clock out. That's not abiding. Abiding in him is like breathing. None of us go all day without breathing. None of us. None of us could survive. And Jesus is trying to help us understand that's how vitally you need me. All this to say in Isaiah 30, 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That's his desire. Why does he want us to obey him? because he wants to be gracious to us, because he wants us to taste his goodness. Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. So when we start looking at our lives and we start going, making a list of all the things we're not doing right and I'm not abiding in Jesus and when's the last time I prayed and how long do I pray and oh, I haven't checked off my good Christian box. I didn't read my Bible for 10 minutes a day. That's not what Jesus is asking for. God longs to be gracious. God desires so much that he waits. He waits for Jake to look up, to stop and fix my eyes on him so that he can have compassion on me. The Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Tell you what, hold your breath for a minute. You start longing for air. Do we long for the Lord like that? Picking up here in Deuteronomy 6.1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Second point here, disciples embrace discipline. Where am I getting that from? It's in the word teach. If you look at the verse one, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. We've been looking at this over the last several weeks. Teaching, in a biblical sense, is way more than classroom instruction or listening to a pastor for 60 minutes, 30 minutes, once a week, 
twice a week. That's not the kind of teaching God had commanded Moses to participate in. When Moses said God commanded him to teach Israel, the word in Hebrew is lamad. And lamad more precisely means to train. It means discipline. Read another way, the Lord your God has commanded me to train and discipline you in his statutes and judgments. Has a different ring to it immediately. Not just teach, to train up, to discipline. I would ask you guys to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse five. We're gonna look at this Understand that this word discipline a little bit more. Hebrews 12, verse five. We'll read through verse 11. Again, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he for our good so that we may share his holiness. And I have verse 11 underlined. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word discipline here in the Greek, paideia, means tutelage, coaching, training. It also implies a degree of disciplinary correction. Nobody likes to be corrected. Sometimes we look for correction because what we're doing isn't working and it's making our lives hard. But no one likes to be told, yeah, you're missing the mark. You didn't do that right. Or you're abysmally failing in this area. Nobody likes to be corrected. My high school football coaches disciplined our team in a variety of ways. We look at what it means to be disciplined. Again, it's not just, we think discipline and a lot of us equate it with punishment. Discipline is bigger than that. Our high school coaches disciplined us in a variety of ways to train us up. They were calm. I had some football coaches who were more calm. There were times where they got really fiery. This one coach, he'd take his hat off anytime we messed up a play, especially after we'd already been taught it, we'd been drilling it all week. It's the day before game day and we are just messing it up and he takes his hat and he always throw it on the ground. And after a while it kind of became a joke, but we all got the picture, it's like, guys, Come on, how long do we have to do this until you understand this formation? We've been practicing it all summer long. You did it great all week, and now the day before game day, you're messing it up. Come on, wake up, McFly. Come on, get with the program. They'd also praise us, and I, this struck me while I was studying this. Discipline is not always a negative thing. 
Because again, what is discipline? It's training. It's instructional. So when my kids are doing the right thing and I want them to grow in learning how to do the right thing, I want to praise that. I want to commend them for that. I want them to go, good job, you're doing it. Keep it up. Oftentimes we're silent. We only pipe up when things go wrong, right? Because that's our human nature. We don't like to be corrected and we love to complain. (laughs) God doesn't like to complain. He's slow to anger. He longs to be compassionate and he loves to bless us. Part of that is affirming and approval. The world doesn't understand what affirming looks like, which is why we've got so many people who are confused and searching for meaning and validation. If you're looking for validation, if you're looking for someone who knows you truly for who you are, look to Jesus. He praises his guys. He says to Peter, who later, not long afterward, has a very strong rebuke for him, he says, blessed are you, Peter, when Peter gets the right answer. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Peter, gold star, because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. The implication, you're hearing the Lord speak to you. You just had a supernatural revelation. You just got the answer, and Peter's like, he still doesn't get it, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't patronize him for not understanding what he just said. He affirms, he's disciplined, he's training them up. They need to know that their rabbi is not just another good teacher, he's the Messiah. So discipline takes a bunch of different forms, but players... I remember seeing some of them. I don't remember their names, but I remember their faces. Players who took offense to the coach's training and correction didn't mature as players, which is not a shocker. They refused to submit, and so they failed to learn, and eventually some even quit. They didn't even make it through the season. They just threw in the towel. Why? Because discipline is sorrowful in the moment. It doesn't always feel good. But what it yields for the players who receive the coach's training and corrections without offense, and that's key. I I grew up, my dad, (laughs) there'd be times where my dad had to get real strong with my brother and I, usually because my mom had asked us like a bazillion times to do it, and we didn't, so then my dad had to step in, and he said, look, listen to me, lock, look me right here. You're gonna do what I said, and you're gonna do it with a smile on your face. I was like, how does this man control my emotions? I had this disgusting look, like I'm trying to smile because right now I don't like him and I hate this. (laughs) But you know what? It built character. The ability to endure, the ability to receive instruction, and it really benefited me. I remember working at the refinery. It baffled me when I saw guys twice my age the boss would say, hey, I need you to go do this, and they'd start to complain and argue. And I'm like, what are you, three? You're old enough to be my dad, and you can't do what the boss just told you to do? And I started to see that. I'm like, what's going on? Where's the disconnect? They never learned how to receive discipline or correction or even training. Some of them, they'd go to do a job And this boss who had way more experience in sandblasting, paint abatement, would come over and show them because they weren't getting it right. They'd roll their eyes. They wouldn't look. I'm watching. I'm like, man, I would love for someone to take the time to show me how to do this. Going back to the football players, the ones who received the training and corrections, 
They didn't take offense at the discipline. They learned from their mistakes. They developed into mature, strong, and highly effective players. Our football team my junior year went to the state championship in California, which is saying a lot. Our starting offensive line was, the average weight was 285 pounds, average. We had like three guys over three. So when I say football, like, I played with some beasts. Some guys went on to the NFL. None of the guys who took offense to the discipline and correction even made it to college. Some of them were incredible athletes and had raw talent. But they wouldn't receive discipline, so they never matured. Another thing, discipline, and I'm, I'm camping out on this just because the Lord brought it to my attention. Remember, when Moses said, God told me to teach you, he's saying train you, to discipline you in the ways of the Lord. <sighs> Disciplines sometimes not even for anything we've done wrong. Two days, summer conditioning in Bakersfield heat, we're talking 105 to 110 degrees, twice a day, two to three hours a day. That was brutal, really hard, really hard for a good month like that. But it made us strong and it made us ready. And when we played teams who didn't have to condition in the same environments we did, we wiped the floor with them. But if you wanna be ready for game day, you gotta make practice harder. Practice, which means the discipline and the training. You're not getting accolades, people in the stands aren't praising you, you're just doing your job. Just do your job. Follow the Lord. Obey what he's called you to do. I would be remiss without mentioning my mom. My mom is an example of discipline. She wasn't vocal about it. And between my mom and my dad, my dad was definitely the more of the correction disciplinarian. So if my dad's doing the correction, how is my mom being a disciplinarian? She was training us by example. And as I've gotten older, I look back and I see these things about my mom. My mom imparted discipline into my life, not by regiment, but by her own example. When my dad lost his health and all the wealth that he had worked so hard, blood, sweat, equity, my mom stuck by his side. When most wives would leave, she didn't. She wouldn't. When he had given up on himself, she wouldn't. I remember growing up, I was a bit of a perfectionist and there were things when if I couldn't do something the way I wanted it done, I'd, I'd melt down. I'd get so, I'd break into self-loathing, just totally lose it. Did my mom get frustrated and start yelling at me and tell me, what's your problem? No. <laughs> when I had meltdowns, my mom wouldn't. She was just steady, stable. She continued to encourage me even when I gave up on myself. When all she heard from teachers and counselors growing up was that she wasn't college material, she even had at least one teacher or counselor call her dumb. When they called her dumb, she ended up going back to school when my brother and I were in junior high. Remember, she's taking care of my dad, helping out at home, because my dad's sick. She's taking care of us. And then she goes back to school in her 40s. <laughs> she took the college's placement level test and started at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, the most remedial class you can imagine. She had to take that. And it didn't deter her. 
She went on to get her associates in science and then she earned her um, registered nursing license through a grueling nursing program. I watched people half her age drop out of the class. They talked about exhaustion. They were taking you know, uppers and downers, like I need to take Adderall and then they'd take sleeping pills and their bodies were all messed up. Not my mom. And all the while, going through all this, she made the dean's list and she graduated top of her class. She was uh, later hired by Bakersfield College's nursing program as an adjunct professor. The girl who was called dumb, she was put into let's say mentally handicapped classes in high school, is now an adjunct professor. All while still caring for my dad and partnering with my dad in raising my brother and I. Talk about discipline and fortitude and character. She just didn't stop. She just kept on. I remember when I knew that my mom was going back to school, I'm like, ha, now she's gonna know what it's like to do homework. She's telling me to do it all the time. What now, Mom? I remember I didn't get that attitudinal with her, but I remember kind of teasing her, and she's like, all right. She, she would just say that, all right, all right. And then she gets straight A's. My mouth shut pretty quick. <laughs> Jake, instead of giving your mom a hard time, learn from her example. When I think of my mom, this passage comes to mind in 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands. I saw my mom do that my whole life. I remember growing up, and as I got older, I'd overhear other wives when they weren't around their husbands slander or badmouth their husbands. My mom never did that once. Never once. So that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, my dad wasn't... <laughs> disobedient to the word, he believed in Jesus, but the way she respected him spoke volumes to me. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And I'm so thankful for that example because I knew what to look for. That's what I see in my wife. Sorry. Gentle and quiet. And there are so many voices out there telling our young women, you gotta be loud and proud. There are a lot of loud and proud young 20-somethings in my mom's nursing program and they all came to her for help because she was gentle and quiet. She was disciplined, and they learned from her. They looked up to her. They were perplexed by her. They had, she had study sessions in her house. they come over, we had dinner, and they got to watch. Not a perfect home, but a home that sought to abide in Jesus. It spoke volumes, and they saw my mom's character every day in class. When she had to be at class at 6 a.m. or doing clinicals or leading up to an exam, they saw her under pressure. And it spoke volumes, and they started to realize it's because she believes in Jesus. And she got to share the Lord with a number of her classmates because she was disciplined. She was devoted to Jesus as a disciple. God called Moses to train up Israel, sometimes through corrections, and even painfully at times. Remember, he comes down off the mountain, and he doesn't just 
you know, Charlton Heston takes the Ten Commandments and breaks them. It doesn't stop there. If you read the account in Exodus, he had, Moses had the golden calf ground up into fine powder and he had all of Israel drink it. That sounds abusive. It's harsh, but it's like you want your idolatry? Drink it up. I won't get into stories right now. <laughs> I'll say one. My Uncle Michael, he, uh, he got caught by his mom smoking a pack. And she's like, oh, you like cigarettes, huh? And she sat down there with him and sat there and watched him smoke a whole pack. He turned green to the gills, threw up, never touched a cigarette again. Today, people would go, that's abusive. Is it? Sometimes it's harsh. But if, again, we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he'll bless us if we abide in him, if we obey his will. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And why did God call Moses to train Israel up? So that they could experience the joy of harmony and holiness. We don't know what it means to be holy. That's something I, Les has this thing, I know less and less about. What does it mean to experience holiness? Again, I would refer you to Moses on Mount Sinai. When he went up for 40 days and 40 nights, what enabled him to go that long without food or drink? Remember, they're in the wilderness. They're actually in the Arabian Peninsula. That's where Mount Sinai is. And without food or water. And when he came down, his face glowed like the sun. It shone like the sun. Because he was experiencing for 40 days and 40 nights the joy of experiencing harmony in holiness. How was he able to do that? He also had to receive the discipline of the Lord. He also had to know what it meant to abide. Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So another question here. How can we learn to receive correction and training? Let me, let me correct this. How we learn to receive correction and training will decide if we're gonna grow up and mature or if we're gonna rebel and fail. It's not just will you receive the correction and training. You can receive correction and training with a bad heart. And if you do, it's pointless. And matter of fact, it'll probably dig your heels in further. Submit doesn't just mean a behavior, it's a belief. How we learn to receive correction and training will determine if we grow and mature or rebel and fail. So here's the question. How, and something to chew on this week, how do you receive and respond to correction and discipline? And that's for everybody, right? You folks who've lived longer than me, you, you know. Doesn't matter when you grow up. Doesn't matter when your, your kids are grown, you're a grandparent. You, you still experience this. How do you receive and respond to the correction and discipline of Jesus? That word teach, I know I'm camping out on it. That's where the Lord had me for a while. The word teach is actually synonymous with an agricultural instrument called a goad, a goad. In Judges 3.31, we read that Shamgar slaughtered 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Ox goads are basically rods, some longer than others, but they're pretty long. I looked it up on YouTube and I watched this guy give an instructional on how to use an ox goad in directing his oxen. 
They're long rods with a sharp tip. There's sharpness to it. So what's the point? But um, Many times, God's teaching will be a gentle nudge. Oftentimes, that's what I've experienced in my life. Sometimes, even in affirming praise, the, the, the rancher, the farmer's next to his ox, and he'll give him pats. He'll speak affirming words. He'll communicate in a way they know, oh, I'm going in the right way. While other times, his teaching is a strong push. Some of these ox goads would have a large, um, kind of almost like burr on the end, big round ball, and he'd push. And sometimes, even a painful poke. Imagine a spike getting pushed into your ribs. It's not pleasant. But he's directing the oxen in the right way. In the right way. Acts 26, 12, while Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute, prosecute, condemn, and kill Christians, Paul testified At midday, he says, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, remember, hearing the Lord's voice is incredibly important. For all the evilness that Saul was part of, he heard the voice and he paid attention. Saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, that's interesting, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love what God says. This is Jesus. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A lot of us get frustrated after a while. We're doing this and we're doing this and God's going this way, this way and we're pushing against him. When we push against him, we're kicking against the goads. Do you wanna put your hands into spikes? And then we push harder, and then we, we yell at God, God, why are you hurting me? He's like, I'm trying to save you. The pain you're feeling is me trying to get your attention to not go this way. But you're not listening. You refuse to open your eyes. You refuse to open your ears. There is a reason for God's discipline if we will receive it. Don't kick against the goads. Again, we'll experience his blessings when we submit to him in obedience. Look at verse two with me. He goes on and says, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Side note, just pay attention. Nowhere in here does Moses say, I strongly urge you, I encourage you, I I highly suggest My advice is, he says, command. Drill sergeants oftentimes don't give suggestions. They give commands. And sometimes the command has to come across very abruptly because he knows if the recruit doesn't listen, the recruit could blow his arm off or kill the other guys next to him. Sometimes we get offended by God's commands because they seem harsh but if he's speaking loudly, it's again, it's not to offend us. It's not to harm or hurt us. If he comes across harshly, it's probably for a good reason. Why did God come down on Mount Sinai and terrify the people? There's a reason for that. We looked at last week. And we're gonna continue to look at right now. That next point is followers fear the Lord. What does God tell Moses is the reason for Israel's obedience? So that they would fear him. My father-in-law loves surfing. 
hasn't gone out in a long time. But when you get out there, and I'm not an avid surfer at all, I tried a little bit when I was younger. On the Pacific coast, you get out there on the waves, you look from the beach and you're like, whatever, eight foot wave. When you get under the eight foot wave and it hits you, you don't think it's small anymore. Surfers who have surfed repeatedly, like it's a, it's a part of their life. We call them beach bums, right? I remember my brother and I driving down highway um, from coming home from school and we looked out and we saw this guys were driving on the highway. We're watching this guy get out of his like Mercedes and he's cuffing his pants and he throws off his coat and he pulls out a surfboard and he heads into the water. And I was like, that guy really loves to surf. But anyone who really loves to surf will at some point experience the tremendous power of the wave. And I had a friend who's a youth pastor actually who went out surfing one time and he, I think he said he encountered a 12 or 15 foot wave and it, it almost killed him. It pounds you into the bottom and it's not done, it's like a washing machine and it just kept on pounding over and over and over and over. And he remembered feeling, I'm losing air, I'm losing air. And I've heard this story from lots of surfers too. And he finally got a gasp, he got back to shore and he didn't surf the rest of the day. He's terrified. There was so much tremendous power. Why did God show his tremendous power to his people Israel? It was actually for their sake that they would fear him. And that sounds strange. It probably even sounds offensive to some, our modern American notions. But let's make a distinction between fear. Genesis 9-2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. That word fear in Hebrew is morah. And it's not the word fear here in Deuteronomy 6-2. Morah means terror, dread. My friend didn't come away from the waves with a sense of terror. He came away with a sense of healthy respect. Deuteronomy 6, the word is yare. It means to have reverence towards and be in awe of. So how does revering God, how does this fear of God affect our attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors? This is really important because our generation and our culture today takes wisdom and throws it out the window. We're all about knowledge. We got some incredibly knowledgeable, intellectually foolish people. This is the difference here. What does the fear of God do to our, our beliefs, behaviors, and attitudes? Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Understanding doesn't come from a PhD or college credentials or certificates. True understanding comes from the Holy One. All this said, daily reverence towards God in my thoughts Daily reverence and respect to God with my decisions grants me access to his supernatural wisdom. Moses needed the supernatural wisdom of God in order to accomplish the calling he had on his life. And I'm looking at a crowd of people who all have a calling. Some of you might know what God's called you to. Some of you don't. Some of you are like, 
I got gray hair or I got no hair. I'm joining you. And you think, my calling's over. No, it's not. It wasn't for Moses. God has a purpose for our lives, but we're not gonna know what that purpose is and we're not gonna know how to live that purpose out without his wisdom. And we're not gonna have wisdom without humility. And humility comes when we walk daily in the fear of the Lord. I I said this last week. A guy who filled in for me, Ray Rimped, he was a good old white hair, but he had all his hairs and I, I can't say the same. But he filled in for me one week for Tuesday in middle school group and taught. We got back together, I took him out to lunch because I wanted to hear his thoughts about his experience. And out of everything he said, if there's one thing I can encourage you to do, Jake, is teach these kids the fear of the Lord. I'll never forget. I didn't understand exactly what he meant. I know it's in the Bible, so it's a good thing, and I'm talking with a wise brother, so I went okay. But as I get older, I understand this better. Supernatural wisdom, you want understanding? What college should I go to? What will I do when I graduate high school? Should I date this this guy or this gal? Should I get married? Should we have kids? Should we move here? You need wisdom for that. You need understanding for those, those real life practical decisions in life. And you and I won't get it right if we're not abiding in him, if we don't have a reverence for him in our daily lives. If I will abide in God, he initiates me into his understanding. How do you make disciples? Just like Jesus did. He walked alongside them by example. He stayed in God's discipline and training together with his guys to its full effect. Jesus didn't just tell his guys what to do. He did it with them. Hebrews 5.8, look it up. Kind of shakes people's theology of Jesus. He learned obedience? What? He's God. I'm not gonna get into that today, but check it out. Now look at verse three with me, Deuteronomy 6.3. Oh, Israel, you, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a quick one. Disciples are doers. What does he say? You should listen, Israel, and be careful to do. Disciples are doers. Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. James 1, 22 put it this way. Prove yourselves. When I say prove, I don't mean show your credentials, pop your collar, peacock. When he says prove, it literally means partake and become. That's what the word prove means. Prove yourselves, literally partake and become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and left, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. My son does it all the time. He comes out of the bathroom, he's like halfway dazed, goes into the bathroom, I know he looked himself in the mirror. He comes out and, and his hair looks more chaotic than, than a haystack and a tornado, right? I'm like, dude, what is up? And he's like, whatever. <laughs> Enjoy that hair, son. I've mentioned that too many times. Maybe I need to pray about that. <laughs> My point is, one of the major distractions to our discipleship is we've deluded ourselves. I've deluded myself. This is a really convicting teaching for me to go through. I'm having to take all of this with you guys. 
I love to talk about, we love to theologize. Some of us will even turn, earn titles that show off just how much we know about Jesus. But ultimately, there's no change, so it's empty. Jesus went toe-to-toe with guys with credentials all the time, the Pharisees, well-learned men, and yet they couldn't see truth when it was staring them right in the face because they didn't do the word. They tried to perform the word, but they would not partake in and become doers of the word, and that's a humbling experience. That's why Jesus called Pharisees hypocrites. Apprentices act on Jesus' words. But side note, be encouraged if you're like, I've, I know a lot of these things, but I don't do them like I should. I'm not gonna get into it right now, but there are things in my life right now for a solid year that God has just been, when I say drill, I don't mean like crushing me, but he will not let me let up. And he's, he's saying to me, I'm gonna keep on talking to you and I'm gonna keep reminding you and I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep getting on your case, Jake, until you finally do what you say you believe. Do this, it's good for you. It's funny, we know it's good here. Why don't we do the things we know we ought to? Because we don't actually believe them here. Belief is different than intellectual knowledge. Look at verse four with me. Here, O Israel, that word is important, here, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Here's your next point. Systematic rhythm in discipleship. And uh, Lord willing, I'm gonna come back to this very passage next time and talk more on this. There's so much more to be plumbed out of this. Verses four through six is essentially what I would call true systematic theology. We complicate God's ways with religious rituals and dogmas and denominations and so-called doctrines. His way is simple enough that even a child can understand. But it's also ironic, only children, only people with humility like a child's heart can actually understand it. And that's the point, Matthew 18, one. At, the same, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He's with his disciples. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. Either right next to him, possibly on his knee, right next to him. The disciples were like, parents, keep your kids away. This is an important man. And Jesus says, suffer the children to let them come to me. The kingdom of heaven is made of people like this. He turns the tables on his disciples and says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This was to Israel, and I believe still is, the prescription to practice life and experience God. How do I love the Lord? with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength? How do I love my neighbor like myself? You can't do it without a childlike heart. Children intrinsically live in humility. They depend on someone else to feed them. They depend on someone else to clothe them. They depend on someone else to teach them. They depend on someone else to help them. That's the heart we all need to have with our Heavenly Father. 
hear God. Notice, all of this stems on one thing. Hear, O Israel. And hearing is not collecting information or sound into our audio senses. My wife is really smart, really smart. It took me a while to learn how to best her in a situation. She is so good. She can do something over here. She can talk to our kids. She can do something with her hands and still hear me. And then I'm like, you're not listening to me. She's like, yes, I am. You're not even looking at me. You're doing these two things. Tell me what I said. She repeated verbatim. I'm like, I know she's not listening to me, but I can't prove it. Years go on, and then I remember one day, I don't know what the day was, one fateful day, I went, repeat it to me. I had this little glimmer in my eye, and she repeats it, and I'm like, that's really good. What does that mean? She went, we're all like that. We read this, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, God, oh, I know that. Again, to repeat my dad, if you know it so well, Jake, why don't you do it? We do what we believe. There's a disconnect between our intellect and our faith, and it goes back to you gotta hear God. The word hear in Hebrew, shema, means to not just listen, but to listen to seek to understand it. And why would you wanna understand it? So you can actually do it, which goes back to disciples doing the word. If we hear God with that heart, then we can begin to love him with our whole heart. Then we can love him with our mind. That means our thoughts, our intentions, and our desires. There are things that I wrestle with that come in and out of me, sometimes without my knowing. I have thoughts pop in my head, or I'll have a dream, and I'm like, that's not good. That's a sign of my flesh. That's not God's fault, and he's not condemning me, but that's a sign to me, Jake, you still have room to grow in learning how to love him with all your mind and to love him with your whole body. We live in a generation, again, that says I can love God, but I can love me with my body. I can do what I want with my body and that doesn't affect my relationship with God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus preaches. Romans 12, one through two, check it out. It's Jeremy's in my life verse, right bro? We can't love someone that we can't or refuse to listen to. So next question here, what does it look like for you to present yourself to listen to the Lord daily? And I'm coming down here. I'm getting ready to land the plane. And I'm gonna move fast, so stick with me. What do the patterns of your daily life look like? What would happen if we began our daily practice as apprentices, abiding in the master? Our worry would be replaced with worship, our speculations with supernatural prayers, and we'd experience the joy of a thankful and satisfied life. And what's the result of all this? We would get the peace of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, guarding our hearts and our minds. This world is desperately in need of that. People are clawing for peace. Give me quietness and give me harmony. When we say peace, we don't just mean quiet and stillness. There are a lot of quiet, still, isolated people who are torn up inside by anxiety. Peace is harmony. Harmony with who? Him. When God spoke to the land, it created animals. When God spoke to the sea, it created fish. When God spoke to the sky, it created birds. Who did he speak to to create us? Himself. 
You take the fish out of the sea, they die. That's their natural environment. We, I'm sorry, God is our natural environment. Why are we without peace? Because we're not plugged into the Prince of Peace. I wanna just throw this out as we look at these last three verses. Write it down. I highly encourage you to check it out. If you're interested in, in discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, check this out. Thanks to my wise and influential wife, I came upon a podcast called Awana's Childship, Child Discipleship Podcast. And the, the title is Cultivating a Rhythm of Child Discipleship in Our Churches and Homes. Cultivating a rhythm of child discipleship in our churches and homes. Let's move to the next verse. And remember, I'm probably gonna be back here next time I'm teaching. So we're, gonna, we're not gonna plow all this right now. I don't have time for it. Verse seven, he says, after talking about hearing the Lord and loving him, you shall teach them these things diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they will be as frontals on your forehead. You will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I am not gonna get into a deep, nitty-gritty breakdown of what all this means, because I think that's, that's for another teaching. But let me share some information with you guys that I've been learning recently. Hopefully it's revelatory, hopefully it changes our lives. I'm, I'm praying to God that I'm, I'm, I'm really picking up what he's laying down. In a study conducted by Barna and Awana, I'm sorry, back up. If you're taking notes, last point is disciples' daily devotions. In a study conducted by Barna and Awana, they asked church leaders and Christian parents, who's responsible to disciple children? 95% of church leaders said it was the responsibility of the parents. We see that here. Over half of all Christian parents said it was the responsibility of the church. There's a disconnect. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent and you feel like, Jake, you're getting kind of cheeky here, don't be a jerk. We also need to remember, how did the parents know what to impart to the children? Moses. And this is a convicting thing for me and this is one reason I'm not gonna get into the nitty gritty today because this is something I'm still searching out what does it look like for pastors and church leaders to equip the fellowship, to equip the saints? I'll just say this, something Matt Markin said has stood out to me, it's way more than giving resources. I could put up links to you to go listen to a podcast or go read this book, that's resourcing, that's not equipping. Resourcing comes with equipping, but equipping, again, that's down in the trenches. Moses didn't just teach, instruct, orate these things, he lived them out with the people on a daily basis. In a six-week cohort that I'm doing through Barna, discussing how to disciple Gen Z, that's teens, Gabe, that's teens and young adults. I don't see you as a young adult, Jeremy. You're so wise for your age. But, you know, that generation, we're looking at people, their late teens and into their mid-20s. That's Generation Z. We're looking at a six-week course how, what does it look like to disciple these people? One of the sessions revolved around Bible engagement. What is Bible engagement? Let me define it. Bible-engaged teens and young adults are people who hold a high view of the Scripture. They read the Bible multiple times in a week, several times, not just at youth group and not just at Sunday. 
Bible open Gen Zers might hold a high view of the Bible, but they read it less, or they're just neutral to it. They're extremely open to it. Based on their research, Barna found that 9% of Gen Zers are Bible engaged. That drops to 5% when they graduate. However, don't be a Debbie Downer, 58 to 62% of teens and young adults are open to the Bible. So there's a woeful demographic here. We don't have young people who are engaged in the Bible. However, they're extremely open to it. Who's going to engage them with God's word? Who's going to engage them in relational ministry? When you think so few teens, or why do we think so few teens and young adults are biblically engaged? And I'll say this, and this is a convicting one for me. There's a difference between biblical literacy and Bible engagement. And after about a year or two, I've shared it on Sundays, an experience I had when I heard two kids, no joke, very seriously, arguing about who Moses and Noah was and how to tell the difference. They started to describe physical features. We didn't have Polaroids back then, bro. Oh no, that guy had the long white beard. What? And then I remember thinking, dude, these kids don't even know basic Bible stories. I, these kids need to be biblically literate. And I only got part of it. They need to be Bible engaged. Biblically literate is telling them what to think. You could put it that way. This is what the Bible says. Bible engaged is showing them how to think. Spiritual critical thinking. You could put it that way. Bible literacy is familiarity with Scripture. Knowledgeable. Memorization. There's a group of people in the Bible who were incredibly biblically literate. Bible engagement, however, is reading scripture to know and follow Jesus, John 5, 39. The Pharisees, phenomenally literate. Phenomenal. Just truly has me in awe what they were able to memorize. But we see the disconnect, right? Highly biblically literate and highly spiritually blind. And we create dogmatic, self-righteous, religious people instead of humble seekers of the truth and disciples of Jesus. Barna found that 98% of Bible-engaged teens were mentored by at least four people in how to read his word and how to apply it. One huge reason I'm up here today getting the privilege to share the word of God with you is because I've, I watched my mom and dad read the Bible I had my youth pastor in my life. I had youth volunteers in my life. I had mentors in college. Then I start working here, and guess what? I had the blessing of having a senior pastor who wanted to pour into me. If I had a question about the Bible, I had a question about ministry, I had a question about anything, I could talk to him. Less, I've learned a great deal, and I know a lot of us have, in how to pray. That was the one question the disciples asked. Teach us how to pray, not how to read the Bible, not how to work miracles, how to pray. I have way more than four people who have poured into my life throughout my life. So I didn't have one guru who was my mentor. That one guru, really, is the Holy Spirit. But he used influential people in my life, men and women. And I'm a Bible-engaged person, not perfect. You can ask my wife. But when I read the word, and he, side note, the John 5, 39 thing where Jesus challenges the Pharisees and says, you guys search the scriptures thinking that in these you have eternal life, but it's these that testify of me. I didn't get that until I came here. 
and not in the first year. I remember talking with Rick. I remember hearing these things from Rick and Les for years. And then one day, sitting down talking with them, they said it for the umpteenth time, and it was like, oh, we gotta teach people how to read the Bible to see Jesus, not to know scripture. If you get Bible engaged, you will become biblically literate. My mom is no theologian, but I grew up learning from her what unwavering faithfulness and the true wisdom of Jesus looks like, James 3.17. Wisdom is first pure and peaceable, then gentle. Wisdom is not intellect. And Jesus is looking for wise people. He's not looking for people who know a lot. He's looking for people who know they don't know anything. So a couple practical applications and we're out of here. Our life's daily system of rhythms must align with God's system and rhythms if we wanna be as devoted disciples. On your own time, read verses seven through nine. It was a day in and a day out thing. Their goal in life revolved around that paradigm. If their activities and functions and desires didn't fit this mold, they didn't do it. And that's the problem I've seen over the years with the American church, myself also. We live secularized lives. We go to Jesus on Sunday, and on Wednesday, we might even have a home group. But this is really convicting. Does Jake start, does the first thing that Jake does start with God? 99% of the time, it doesn't. And I'm not talking a Bible app. What's in the news today? And this is, what, this is what Jake's first meal oftentimes looks like in the beginning of the day. I'm sharing that with you, not to sound humble, and certainly not, hopefully you guys are gonna come up and go, come on, Jake, but to relate, because I know I'm not the only one here this morning who can relate with that reality. Bible-engaged people start the day with Jesus, and they end the day with Jesus. And I can't speak, and I won't speak for you, but I have a long way to go. I'm just thankful that he is compassionate and long-suffering and desires to put his compassion on me. So, a couple questions. What are my dreams? What are my dreams and desires, and do they line up with Jesus? Does my way of life line up with verses four through nine? If my, if my grid for life competes and contradicts this, something has to change. What in my daily life and habits enables me to hear God and to love him with all my heart, mind, and body? The decision on these questions will reveal the object of your desire and your discipleship because we're all discipled by someone or something. The question is who? And I'll end with this verse. Worship team, if you wanna come on up. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads. Remember what goads are? And masters of these collections of wise words are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So my hat's off too, and I highly admire that white-haired man in the back, not just because he has more hair than me, but because I've gotten so much wisdom from him. I love him because I've experienced God's wisdom in his life to me and the guy in front of him, which I relate with more on more than one level. 
I have gleaned from those guys. But all this wisdom is from one shepherd. We gotta go to the source. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books. If, there are any, if there's anyone going to school right now, high school, college, looking at higher learning, please hear this and heed your life to this. Be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Would you pray with me? The thing that stands out to me right now, Father, is we think about people like Moses or we think about people in our lives who we've known who walk closely with you and we revere their wisdom. They're like sages in our life. But wisdom is not merely knowledge. Evidence of wisdom is a life of purity. Evidence of wisdom is a life of peace and gentleness. Both my mom and dad exhibit qualities of your wisdom but I guess because it's Mother's Day, I just wanna mention, I'm thankful, Lord, for the wisdom that you taught me through my mom, not through the words she spoke, but the life that she's lived. Would you help raise up a generation of women who abide by your word? The gentleness of my mom is louder, <laughs> louder than all the, the proud, physically prowess women in the world. Her life has indelibly made a mark on my life and that is because of you, Jesus. Because you didn't expect me to get all this all at once. And there's a lot that we've looked at this morning. And you are not sitting on your throne, tapping your fingers, waiting for us to get our act together. You're waiting for us to pour out your compassion on us because we're your children. And you know it's a process and it's called a relationship. So we'll always be in process because that's why you made us, to be with you to live life with you, to experience you. I ask, Holy Spirit, seal the words that we've heard today and that we would not just simply be hearers but doers of your word because we believe your word. Help us to feed on your faithfulness and taste and see that you're good for us personally so that we have goodness to share with those in our lives around us. Jake, why are you the way that you are? Let me tell you about Jesus because he's the reason. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, and this is not to be arbitrary, really and truly, I thank you for this day that has encouraged me to think about the godly women in my lives, in, in my life, my wife, my mom, my mother-in-law, aunts, godly women, sisters in this fellowship. And I thank you, Jesus, that your wisdom to us has not come... <laughs> oftentimes with a, a leather belt, but with the nurturing, tender care of a mother who tenderly cares for her children. We love you, Lord, and we lift this word up to you in your name. Amen. Amen.